Hey, First Gen family. This is your host, Rich Two. This is a special series in this feed called First Gen Stay Home Edition. The mission is the same, sharing immigrant stories from the creative community, but in this new normal we're all experiencing. I'll be catching up with friends of the show as well as some new ones. Before we get to our guests, I encourage all of you to help support your frontline healthcare providers and donate to First Responders First, a fund dedicated to frontline healthcare providers serving during the coronavirus pandemic. And you can do that at help.firstrespondersfirst.co. All right, so Laura Mueller Sopart, real estate developer and also founder of Built Interest. Thanks for joining us today on First Generation Burden Stay Home Edition. Thank you. Happy to be here. <laughs> uh, it's a pleasure. So, uh, the way that everyone begins our conversation is is if you could tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from, that would be awesome. Sure. Um, so I am Laura. I was born in Germany, and um, I was born to German and Spanish parents. And after a few years um, as a kid in Europe, my parents moved to Brazil for a hot second and then landed in Chicago, where I definitely feel very raised, almost born. <laughs> Can you tell a little bit about growing up in Germany and growing up um, to uh, a, an international family and also what brought you to Chicago? Yeah, yeah. So I moved to the States when I was um, in kindergarten. So oh, okay. um, still definitely a kid, uh, but always really felt this duality um, for a really, really long time from, you know, kids being like, oh, like imitating my parents' accents right? To like never having been to American summer camp and every summer <laughs> going and like spending three months with the, with the grandparents um, abroad. So it, it always was a really big part of my life of like trying to figure out, you know, what part, like in America, I got to like wave the, you know, George W. Bush is your president. It's not my president, <laughs> you know, when it was convenient. And then when I was in Europe, I was like, oh, you know, those etiquette rules, like, it's not really my thing. We don't do that at home. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like the best of both worlds. A hundred percent. And I would have never had it um, any other way. It's like to this day, so I feel so attached to that, that duality. Oh, do you have any memories of Germany? Like, uh, can you For tell sure. a little bit about, yeah, like from the environment to like the sights and sounds? Because I know that you worked in, in Berlin as an adult. I just, um, I would love for the through thread to, to get a sense of what your memories were and then what they felt like when you actually went back down the line. My memories were really pointed by grandparent stuff, right? So I like would go back to Germany. I wouldn't really have too many friends my age. Yeah, I had some cousins. Um, in, in, I had grandparents in Spain, cousins in France, grandparents in Germany. So I felt very like Euro. Um, and to me, Germany was really about a little bit of like a slower, more mindful pace. Um, recycling was always something that just really stuck out at me as something that was totally second nature, right? It didn't matter if it was never on vogue, you just recycled in seven different ways. And that was normal. Um, like sports were so different. Um, I always like, I would play tennis, which was like a weird bougie thing to do back home, but like <laughs> totally normal um, there. And um, so there were these like cultural differences that were quite obvious. Um, and my humor did not translate from <laughs> English to German. And that was another thing I really remember too. So I kind of had this stereotype in my head of like, oh, Germans are kind of cold. Like what's up here? Um, and I think 
what was really interesting when I moved to Berlin at like 24, 25 was that Berlin is just a completely different place than Munich where I was in Germany before. And I just kind of realized that just the same way the United States is, there are so many different regions, so many different types of vibes, cultures, diversities uh, that exist within Germany the same way they exist at home. So I think that was like a, a really big, big difference. And, and it made me excited to be back in Germany as an adult. I think growing up, my mom was always, she's the Spanish one, um, but she grew up in <laughs> Germany too. Yeah. And, you know, I think that when you give up so much to figure out how to raise your kids in the United States and like afford them the opportunity of, you know, what it symbolizes and symbolized, especially right. um, to be in the States. She was like, why would you go back? That's not what I did all of this for. Um, and, and it was a great experience, I think. And she even uh, turned, turned around on it too, I think a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you are in real estate. Uh, and yes. also you're the founder of Built Interest. And right now, like from, from everything that I know about you, you have a focus on bringing human-centered perspective to how we build our cities, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's fascinating, especially right now because we are existing in the COVID-19 pandemic. And obviously, I think the way that we, go, that we think about our cities and the way we think about social engineering is going to fundamentally change based on mm -hmm. everything that we're all ex uh, experiencing as a worldwide community. Can you speak a little bit about your interest in that and how that started for you. And also, I know that you have a very fascinating resume from working um, at the White House and also uh, working with Two Trees. I'd, I'd just love to know a little bit more about like, how you developed those sensibilities, um, um, especially being a, such an international person. Yeah, ultimately, the one thing that was like the common denominator in my life was that I always was in a city. So at home, and it was in Chicago, downtown Chicago, in with my grandparents it was in the heart of munich or dusseldorf or the heart of paris it was never um or like when we lived in brazil we lived in sao paulo like it was always in the heart of a city so that urbanity was a common denominator throughout my life and you you know i moved to boston for school and that was a city that just made like less sense to me um <laughs> and living on a campus was like the first time I lived basically what felt like the suburbs, right? Like in a gated community. Um, and so there was just this moment of reckoning of like, oh my God, you can design place. You can make people feel welcome. You can make people feel excluded. You can do things that are great for the environment. You can do things that are great for infrastructure, right? And sometimes you can do it all and sometimes you can do none of it. Right? And, um, and so having that diversity of place, um, I just was always really focused too on impact and scale of impact. And that's what led me to government to start where um, you, I felt like there was such willingness to listen to different voices and different opinions and um, seeking expert opinion is so welcomed at the government level, it's less competitive like business sometimes. So I just love that vibe. So I did um, the EU, I did the White House, I did the State House of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh, well, now I'm going to work at the city level. Uh, what did you study in Boston? Can I ask that? I studied, yeah, I studied poli-sci and econ at Northeastern University. 
Got it. Well, also, why did Boston not make sense as a city? I mean, I've been to Boston and I do quite love that city, but also I, I get what you're saying. It's geographically, it's a hard, a hard thing for me to pinpoint as a person from New Jersey who lives in New York. Yeah. Well, what's your take on it? I got to know Boston best when I was volunteering um, with a community organizing group there in Roxbury. And so we did a lot of walking around and a lot of canvassing and knocking at people's doors and just like walking parts of um, Dorchester and Roxbury and those areas. I just constantly questioned how could a city like this have developed, especially one of the oldest cities in the United States. Right. And you just started to learn the effect of you know, institutions like um, Ivy League universities, the effect of having so much land in a city like that be not-for-profit mm. um, and untaxed, and um, the effect then of how that lends itself to the demographics and the equality in that city is just, you know, it's bad in all American cities, but it felt extra bad in Boston. Um so that was just a city where you just saw different things at play. Um, and right. so it's it, so tangible. Does, how did that compare to Chicago? Chicago's hard. Like I, yeah. you know, there's, I had a very unique experience because I went to excellent public schools yeah. that um, back in the day were racially quoted. It was 30% um, black, Hispanic, white, um, disabled, and um that's just the way it was. And it was normal and it was excellent. The high school that I went on, went to was on division street. I mean, like the North side versus the South side of Chicago is a real, um, a line in the sand in many ways to this day. So you have the same things at play. They just manifest differently. Um, uh, they just evolve in a slightly different way. A hundred percent. You have the same stuff in Brooklyn. You have the same stuff on the lower East side. You have the same, you know, whatever it right. is, it's all there. Yeah. That's fascinating. So yeah, I like wanted to work at the city level and I was just like, do cities really build cities? I was like, no, uh, yeah. real estate developers build cities. So I went out to look for uh, the one real estate developer that I thought was looking at the world with a wider lens than most. And, and that's how I landed at Two Trees. Can you talk, actually, I, I want to stick on the, the White House piece too, just a little bit. Mm -hmm. I just want to, I want to know how you worked on the Obama campaign or how that came into your life. Because I saw that you interned uh, for that yeah. campaign. And then you actually worked at the White House. Like, what, what was the length, the duration, also your experience like with that? Oh my gosh. It's, uh, I've been getting all those um, Facebook, like, time uh, oh, throwback like time photos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh, those were the days. <laughs> um, uh, so being in Chicago, obviously, um, Senator Obama was a household name to some degree. Um, and, and it just like a, you know, super model UN nerdy, like high school human, it was just a, an interesting opportunity right at our fingertips. And, um, and I just went for it. I just like multiple days after school every week, I would go, um, volunteer at the headquarters downtown. Um, and eventually I just started getting really involved. I was there for the Springfield announcement of his candidacy. Mm. Um, so like day zero all the way through to when he won and we were there at Grant Park. And wow. um, I helped organize students to um, knock on doors uh, in Iowa and in Michigan, Indiana, um, a little Wisconsin stuff too. So it, we were just in the thick of it literally every day volunteering as much as we could. Um, did, did you get any time with him, FaceTime? 
So I got some FaceTime with um, the president when I was an intern. So when I, at, in 2011, that summer, I spent um, almost four months at the Domestic Policy Council and I worked on healthcare reform legislation and I worked on the Innovation Council. So there had been like a new office that Obama created around how can the private sector and the public sector work better together? Um, and that was kind of the intersection of my degree to write econ policy was, you know, how do you make the world actually work together? Mm. And so, yeah, I, I wrote um, some talking points for the president and for Arnie Duncan and, and a few people for a really interesting meeting um, called the giving with the giving pledge. It was literally like almost every billionaire uh, and the president and Valerie Jarrett and Arnie Duncan, who was the secretary wow. of edu education, just like hashing it out what they should do for the next year. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, that to be in that, to be in that room. Yeah. And also just to get a sense of like the moving pieces and also the, the energy going back and forth. Right. Oh my God. I mean, it was a room that I certainly never could have imagined existed be <laughs> that I would be standing in it. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds amazing. So, so going back to two trees, I know we're bouncing all over the place a little bit, but uh, yeah. when you when you moved over to two trees, like what what was that like? I know you worked on some really amazing projects, like the Domino Factory. Uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about the development of that? I know that that's a big space uh, out here in New York uh, for the listeners, um, and also often used as a um, as an artistic space for these large sculptural events. Um, so yeah, what was your experience, uh, helping develop that? It's actually quite connected because like you said, a big part of Domino is that it intersects with the community. It intersects with cultural institutions. It intersects with the city parks and rec. And of course with, um, development for profit businesses and banking and everything else that goes into real estate. So learning what the language is kind of like, right at the white house around these public private partnerships definitely made me feel a lot more prepared for what are like the moods and vibes and incentives behind everybody at a table, especially when they're coming from such different um, incentive structures. And working at Two Trees was great um, for the most part. And, you know, you always leave for a reason. And um, Domino was an incredible project. It was what ultimately drew me to want to wanna work there in the first place. It's 11 acres on the East River. It's um, five contiguous buildings that have a mix of residential, mm. um, commercial, like offices and retail, 30% um, affordable housing, and a six-acre park. And that park is privately developed and privately operated, and I don't think most New Yorkers would know that. Mm. And it's that all used that to well be- well integrated. Right, and they, uh, that all used to be the, the Domino Sugar Factory back in the day, yeah. right? Yeah. Once upon a time, it was, it was an operating sugar factory, right? Which has its own like history and, and that weight of that history is real too. And, and so I think a big part of what we were trying to do was bring in art that would pay um, homage to that history and, and not erase it even as we redeveloped it. So we had Kara Walker come in and um, we worked with Creative Time to do the Sugar Sphinx, which, um, you know, I think was an incredible piece of, of art and, and history ultimately that 250,000 people saw that summer. Yeah. Um, we built like a pump track for kids where you saw 
you saw like Latino kids and Hasidic kids and white kids and everyone like playing together on the same playground, which Mm -hmm. you weirdly don't see that much of in Williamsburg. Um, And, and so we just knew that like, we have space, we have land. Um, Two trees like understood that there's a return on the investment of doing these kinds of projects. Um, And, and it was an incredible learning curve and learning opportunity that really led me to do built interest where I wanted to bring that kind of thinking to more developers all around the world. When you're working on a project of that scope and size, how much uh, back work or how much prep work before you even um, hit the shovel on day one, right? Uh, like, What was that like for the Domino Factory? How, how long had that been in plans? And, you know, because that seems like such a massive undertaking. Yeah. So, um, Domino, I, my like day one at two trees was basically the day that we celebrated getting, um, our ULERP or basically like the permit that says you're allowed to build X, Y, Z. And so the pre-development phase wasn't really part of my experience there, but I know that it took, um, an extra almost two and a half years because the original design that, um, two trees purchased. So when like two trees or any developer purchase land, they oftentimes purchase development rights and those development rights are quite specific. They can already dictate the, the shape of the building, how high the building is going to be, how many units you're allowed to fit in within that, what we call an envelope. And so when you buy not just the land, but you buy the rights to develop the land you can feel pretty like, okay, there's not much we can do here because the city already told us these are the rules. So two trees went back to the city and they're like, we don't care if it's going to take an extra two years, but we are going to re we need to reset the rules because this development is just not good enough for the opportunity at hand. And that's how we ended up with more park space and in exchange taller buildings, to be honest. Um, And so that develop that pre-development phase can last years. We're doing a lot of work in LA right now. And LA has a completely different set of rules and a different public hearing process. And and something that's very important in LA is adhering to specific environmental codes and making sure that you are following all the rules um, and that your land is clean and that you've done everything to protect the environment around you. That can take a year. And before that, you know, it takes a year to close a deal. And sometimes right. even before that, it takes a year to find the money to close the deal. No yeah. project takes less than five years. Gotcha. So, uh, so moving on to built interest, can you talk us a little bit about, um, about that company, what inspired you to, to create that and also what, what you're working on right now? Sure. So built interest was really, it came out of this idea that Yes, the work that I was doing in Brooklyn was excellent, but it certainly wasn't ahead of what I felt like was happening around the introduction of companies like WeWork and Common and all of these like real estate, quote unquote, tech companies. Um, And I was like, the landlord and the real estate developer, there's no chance that they're going to let somebody like WeWork become the man, right? They're not going to like relinquish any power, (laughs) So that means that they need to develop their own concepts in order to do that. And 
I looked at that as, you know what, hey, maybe that means that we can actually build buildings with a purpose. If the developer knows what is going to operate within those four walls, then we can design around an operation. And to me, that sounded so much more efficient and really exciting because then all of a sudden you're designing around the operation, which means you're designing around the human. And that's how I derived this idea of that you can inject human-centered design into real estate development, not just into architecture, not just into interiors, but like into the development itself. Um, and so that's like the perspective that I bring to real estate developers like Heinz um, and Oxford and RxR and other really large companies um, that want to think outside the box. They really want to leave a better legacy, but um, don't really have the like internal team to do that. So we become development partners essentially with developers. And right now I'm really focused on working with one particular company called Six Peak and they solely build co-living developments, which means they really focus on creating as much residential density in one building as possible. So in New York, you're like legally allowed to build five-ish, you know, the rules are always gray, five bedrooms to one kitchen. And in Boston, you're allowed to build three bedrooms to one kitchen. And in LA, it's six to one. And um, all those people are allowed to be roommates. They don't have to be like family members or anything. The rules are very old school. Um, And so six peak is like, let's maximize that ratio of bedrooms to units so that we can get as many humans living in you know, nice apartments as possible in urban city centers for a price that does not need to break an arm and a leg. And that to me is like a really important mission um, because ultimately we need to try to convince the money. So investors and banks to fund and underwrite projects that are unconventional because conventional real estate is not working. We spend way too much money on it. It's terrible for the environment and it's, it's not centered around the people that actually live there. Um, And so I think what we're doing with six peak is like, we're working really hard to change the mindset about what is normal, what is a great investment um, and what's future proof. So when you're working with uh, a group like Six Peak on a project like that for co-living, right, is is your involvement, and this is more just for my personal education yeah. on it, is your involvement um, really about the logistics of how to accomplish it? Or are you involved also on a creative level? Because it seems like all the projects that you've dipped your hands into have been very centered around the arts or a lot of your work has been centered around a creative mindset. Like what is the actual um, duties of built interests for a project like that? It's definitely pretty holistic, but I would say that something that's true of most real estate developers is that the organization is quite flat. So everybody kind of does everything um, for better or worse. And so we come in certainly like a development manager um, to help set the tone, set the vision, do the research to back up that vision and then make sure that the decisions we make along the way, be it from the type of sustainable construction we want to do or the design so that the operator can, you know, just, 
start operating from day one is correct. Uh, so we're really there to liaise between the developer and understand their perspective and what they need to do, but also the operator, the architect, the interior designers, um, and you know maybe it's leasing and make sure that what they bring to the table is actually being valued and is being heard and hopefully being implemented. I think it's really easy for you know, that side of it to get kind of squashed um, <laughs> because, because no one who speaks developer talk is actually advocating for the value of design. Um, and so I think that's an often reason why we kind of put it on the back burner or we cut all the corners and it's, right. you know, you step back when it's all done and you're like, oh shoot, maybe we, we should have let more of the budget go towards designy things. Right, um, right. And so I'm there to advocate for that. Um, throughout the entire process. What do you think is the the future of that relationship? So also the future of, I guess, what's happening in the city? Because right now we're in the middle of the pandemic. Um, it's hard for me to step outside and I, I don't want to step in, into crowds. Like, what do you think is the next step within, I guess, six to uh, 12 months of whatever comes out of this, but then moving forward? Do you have a thought on that? It's really hard to tell um, what the the first step will be. Um, And I think that like part of what I'm doing is trying to figure out what, like, what are our options? So the first thing I would always ask, like, what makes you most uncomfortable about stepping outside? What makes you most uncomfortable about sharing a kitchen, most uncomfortable about sharing a bathroom if you have to, right? right? And kind of understanding that perspective and then mitigating our development from there. So personally, I mean, we're obviously, we're not like, hanging out with that many people right now. So I'm using my personal experience. No, for sure. And, of course. Yeah. Um, if anything, I'm just, I'm like, just seeking an education here. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot about the air that I share, be it with my roommate or with our neighbors and how, so like one of the things I was just researching is what can we do to retrofit existing um, heating and air cooling systems to potentially um, kill bacteria and virus as, as the air circulates and, or, you know, is it, is it about installing UV banks in, in the ducts, right? Or is it about, um, installing hospital grade filters? And those are like, you know, there's no perfect solution, but you can definitely start to think about it that way. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I'm still figuring out what the best first step would be, but it's, it's a hundred percent on our minds. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, what do you think are the most important things of a, of a, of a new uh, development project? Like what, what are the key factors that you look for to make you think like, Oh wow, this is a really great thing for, for me and my team to jump into. Yeah. I think that the first thing for sure is the personalities behind it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like any other client business. It's like you really only want to work with people you want to work with. And, um, and so much of development is so personality driven at the end of the day too. Um, people are making a lot of gut decisions. And so you got to like those people's guts. Um, <laughs> you got to like those people's guts. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. I take a lot more time now to get to know people before I hop onto a project um, than I used to. Uh, and, and it makes a huge difference. Um, and then it's, I think it's like any kind of, um, you know, innovation design centric process is you really want to ask the questions 
um, first and, and really all decide like, this is what we're being critical of. And I always love to ask like, why are you doing this? Right. Um, what's, what do you think the opportunity is? Where do you, where do you see this in five years? And where do you see this in 50 years? Mm. Are you trying to sell this asset tomorrow and basically flip it to make some cash? Or do you see this as an asset that you want to be part of a long lasting portfolio? So those kinds of questions like mindset and incentive structure are the most important things to understand because then that influences how much someone is willing to spend on design, on sustainability efforts, on placemaking. If they don't have, if they're not in it for the long haul, then they're not going to invest in anything that doesn't return for the long haul. Um, and so it's a completely different project, right? Right. So I, I definitely always try to understand the incentives. Definitely. And then from there, if they're good, cool people and it all makes (laughs) sense, then you can like make some magic happen for sure. (laughs) Do you have an example of a project and and feel free to not use names here, uh, where you thought it had like a ton of potential, but then maybe there was a developer that just didn't see the vision or, or just things just didn't go the way you wish they had, but you just, but you knew in your gut that it could have, you know, gone through the stratosphere. Yeah, there is one in mind um, in in Manchester, the in the UK that I was working on for a long, pretty long time, and this developer, kind of like a, if you will, like a two trees of England, um, just kind of known for like big multi hyphenated projects, had a bid for a ninety nine year lease on these three plots of land in the city center of Manchester. And two of them were these like old market halls. They were so beautiful. The glass was incredible. And this developer was down to just build something that was restorative, integrated with the community, big, expensive, you know, like architecture where you look at it and you're like, that's art. That it had obviously utility, but he was so down to like leave um, a legacy in Manchester. So we were coming up with all the ideas. Do we like connect these buildings with like a highline thing? Like there's a museum, um, and across the street, how we connect that, you know, what type of, you know, housing do people need? Do they need affordable housing, senior housing? I mean, he was willing to do the right, beautiful thing. And the city of Manchester just, they did not want to hear it. And, (laughs) Part of me was like, it's my American accent. Like they don't want an American to, to build their city for them. <laughs> and, and then, you know, you just, you just kept going through the motions with them. And um, everybody has their perspective. Everybody has a right to be critical. And, you know, that's my, my favorite part of the process, to be honest. Um, but that was one where I was like, damn, it's so rare for a for-profit developer to be down to like build so much public space. Mm. Um, and, and usually I'm on the side of like the, the regulators and the city. And that was the one time where I was like, mm, ouch. Yeah, totally. <laughs> is, is it easier to work or maybe it doesn't make a difference, but is it easier to work with a developer that's for-profit as opposed to one that's not for profit? Is there, is there a nuance there or is it really based on an individual? I uh, have never worked with a not-for-profit 
developer. Gotcha. Okay. Um, also, is that not a, even a thing? You know what? I really want it to be the thing and I'm not wholly like, I don't want to be quoted that it's not a thing. Cause I know that there are not for profit developers, but sure. they're not enough of them for sure. Got it. Like, okay. That's the problem. And I would love to be one one day. Um, because even cities ultimately contract out the majority of their development work to for-profit developers. Got it. No, that makes sense. I want to ask a couple of things about like being such um, an international person. You've lived in a lot of cities all around the world. What Do you have a personal opinion on what your favorite city is? And also, what do you think it takes to have like quote-unquote a perfect city or a city that is close to perfect? Oh, that's a loaded question. Um, I think New York is still my favorite city. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. I came back. Um, it's definitely, definitely feels like home. I would say something that it's incredibly intangible, but there's something like always cultural in a city that I think matters a lot. And like for me, um, what brings me back to New York at the end of the day is that you're allowed to become a New Yorker. The idea of saying I'm a New Yorker you get the New Yorker card after 10 years, right? <laughs> that you're like allowed to say that and no one's gonna tell you that you're fake or you're a poser or ask you like, where are you really from? And that to me is so special. And I think the reason why I was like, I am allowed to feel 100% at home here in a way that I've never experienced in any other city that I've lived in. Um. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting when you go to Berlin, I thought that was an incredible city. It's so weird. Um, and the government there takes such a good job, uh, takes, takes such good care and does such a good job of um, making sure that everybody there feels secure um, in their work, be it freelance art or, you know, startup um, tech stuff that everyone felt this like sense of security there that I thought was something you never feel in New York. Here, everyone's like running around all day, making sure that they can survive. And <laughs> yeah, especially right the, now. I mean, obviously more than ever. Yeah. Um, but the fact that like, it didn't matter, you know, and this is hyperbolic and, and, and you know, a sweeping statement. Um, but there was this like understanding that like, you can take a risk here and we're not going to let you disappear. We're not going to let you fall through the deepest crack. Um, and, and I think that's why people go there to, to do something new and try something different, just like I did. Hmm. Um, and, and you felt that. And part of it, honestly, is rent. <laughs> New York rent is too high and it is very reasonable for the most part in Berlin. Um, so to tie it back to real estate, that is a big part of it. Yeah. There you go. There's the incentive. All right. Yeah. So uh, what are you looking forward to uh, right now? Also, how are you keeping sane? Yeah, my workflow definitely took like weeks to figure out uh, <laughs> there were some struggle, struggle buses. <laughs> For sure. No, yeah. I bet. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing how long you realize it actually takes to form a habit or to break one. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that I feel pretty good. Um, I live in a neighborhood where I can like walk on my walk. I can like call a friend and they'll wait from their, you know, fire escape. Um, and so you have like, these little connections that still make you feel like you've got your flow, you've got your people, you're not alone, even if you're just like in these 
in my box of an apartment most of the day. <laughs> New York is the people at the end of the day. So if, if we weren't able to connect with people and see their faces, I think it would be a lot harder. Yeah, that makes total sense. All right. So, uh, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. This is super dope. I can't believe this time just like flew right by. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Uh, Where can our listeners find you? And also, where can they find Built Interest? Sure. I um, am most easily found on Instagram. My handle is at Laura Long Last Name. Um, And Built Interest, definitely feel free to check out my work online. It's builtinterest.com. Um, and yeah, I was trying to try to update my portfolio as much as possible. (laughs) Thanks, Laura. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can find the first generation burden podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get podcast content on social media. You can find us at at first gen burden and you can find me at rich underscore tu on various social media if possible please support your frontline healthcare workers by donating to first responders first at help.firstrespondersfirst.co check this feed for more episodes i hope you stay safe and stay healthy